The Parable of the Lost Sons Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Fourth Sunday in Lent, March 27th, 2022, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. Luke 15 includes what's often called the parable of the prodigal son, as well as two other lost and found parables. But all three stories are, in fact, a single parable. Reverend Neville Jones takes a detailed look at the chapter and shows how Jesus has carefully constructed a story that is full of surprises for his hearers, as well as being very revealing about two groups of people in the crowd, the tax collectors and sinners on the one hand, and the scribes and the Pharisees on the other. Our worship continues with the public reading and study of the Word of God. And that might not seem like a big deal for us, but in many parts of the persecuted world, this is something they can't do so freely. And the book that we're about to read is not just a book. It's the Word of the Lord. And so in traditional churches... You didn't read it from the front. Where did you read it from? Does anyone know? The center. The symbol was the word of God was meant to be the center of our community and common life. Unfortunately for the recording, we do it from the front. (laughs) But please, (laughs) spiritually, it's think that we're reading it from the middle and the word resonating within our, our community. First of our readings is from the epistle to the Corinthians from The words of Paul, chapter 2. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we were once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from Psalm 32 of David. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you 
and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel is from Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arm around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for enduring that. I chose to read the whole of chapter 15. It's quite a reading, but it's worthwhile. As Aaron said, we're in the fourth Sunday of Lent. And so what that means is that in the cycle of Bible readings, every third year, we get to read perhaps the most known parable in the Gospels. And of course, I'm referring to the parable of the prodigal son. And I think it'll become clear why I chose to read the whole of Luke chapter 15, rather than the part which people normally think of as the parable of the prodigal son. By the way, if you weren't quite sure, the, w- the word prodigal means wasteful. But one rather helpful and catchy title for the whole of the chapter is God's lost and found department. Sometimes you may hear preachers comment that the chapter divisions in the Bible are sometimes arbitrary 
and unhelpfully interrupt the flow of what the author intended. And the start of chapter 15 is a case in point. Now, towards the end of chapter 14, when great crowds were following him, Jesus turned and challenged them about the cost of discipleship and ended with this warning. Therefore, any one of you that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Then Luke adds the illustration of the salt of the earth. He says that the salt that has lost its saltiness cannot be restored. It is just thrown away. And chapter 14 ends with these words that Jesus uses more than once. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus knows that amongst that great crowd were many who were not ready to receive and respond to his teaching. But the first verse of chapter 15 tells us who were ready. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. These were the ones who were hungry to hear more. Now the term sinners was sometimes used to refer to Gentiles with their idolatrous practices. But in this situation, when the crowd was primarily Jewish, it refers to those who had given up even trying to keep the law, at least the law as taught by the religious leaders. The tax collectors were singled out for particular rejection. This is because the system of tax collection imposed by the Romans specified what they expected to receive, not what the tax collection required them to, to take. So they were free to determine the size of their own commission. This was a system ready-made for abuse and corruption. Tax collectors were regarded as traitors, the lowest of the low, because they were collaborating with the Roman oppressors. Synagogues would not accept any gifts from them, and their testimony was not received by Jewish courts. And in the Mishnah, which is the oldest part of the oral law, it said that if a tax collector entered a house, all that was in it became unclean. But these were the people who eagerly gathered around Jesus. Their hearts were hungry and their ears were open to hear his amazing teaching. In contrast, the Pharisees and scribes, the teachers of the law, grumbled and criticized Jesus, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They were no doubt recalling the occasion, recording earlier in Luke's gospel, where Jesus, seeing Levi, or Matthew if you prefer, sitting at his tax booth in Capernaum, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
In that culture, to share a meal with someone was a significant act. It meant acceptance and fellowship, even an aspect of shalom. Most Pharisees would not even eat at the home of a common Israelite for fear of being made ritually unclean. They refer to them as the people of the land. So eating with tax collectors was absolutely out of the question. Jesus, however, was different. His purity was never affected by those he interacted with. Often the reverse happened. Those he touched became clean. This contrast between the sinners who were ready to hear and the Pharisees who just found fault forms the context of the parable that follows. And in the New International Version used here, and most modern Bibles, Luke 15 is divided into three sections, each with their own heading, something like the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. But when you read verse 3 in Luke 15, it suggests something else. It says, then Jesus told them this parable. Luke seems to be saying that there is just one parable here, divided into three parts. All three parts are on the same theme, and they work together in a sequence. So let's first read again the parable about the lost sheep. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. He then calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The shepherd is, of course, a familiar image used in the Hebrew Scriptures, usually referring to either to the leaders of Israel or to the Lord. The most well-known passage is Psalm 23, where David, who was a shepherd himself, says, The Lord is my shepherd. And of course, Jesus uses the image as well when he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, a flock of a hundred sheep was about an average size for a herdsman in those days. And it appears that this sharp-eyed shepherd noticed a sheep was missing before he got to count them in to the sheepfold in the evening. Because he leaves them in the open country, presumably with a helper, and hurries off to search for the lost one. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders to carry it home. He needs to carry it, not just because this gives comfort and reassurance to the sheep, but also because the sheep would have been virtually paralyzed with fear 
when it realized it was lost and alone. As you know, sheep are not the most resourceful of animals, and it was no fit state to just follow the shepherd. But I'm sure Jesus included this detail in the story he tells because it alludes to a verse in Isaiah chapter 40 where it says, Of the Lord God, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now, isn't the overwhelming emotion in, in this story of the lost sheep joy? In the space of a few verses, the word joy or rejoicing appears three times. And we'll see this repeated in the next uh, section of the same parable. This is the one on the about the lost coin, which you notice involves a woman rather than a man. Have you noticed that on many occasions Luke puts together stories or deeds that involve both a man and a woman? Okay, for example, in chapter 1, Gabriel visits Zechariah and then he visits Mary. In the temple, in chapter 2, we see Simeon and then we see Anna. And then in chapter 13, there's a man who plants a mustard seed and a woman who kneads leaven into dough. And there are many more, but that's a study in its own right. I just thought you might be curious. So the reading goes, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The coin she's lost is a Greek drachma, which is similar in value to a Roman denarius. In other words, about a day's wage. Uh, it may have been part of something worn as jewelry, although that's not clear from the passage. In any case, losing one of these ten coins sparked off an immediate search effort. And the similarities between this story and the one about the lost sheep is clear. And there are these, I've listed five similarities. Something valuable has been lost, which results in a careful and persistent search. There is great joy when what is lost has been found. The joy is shared with friends and neighbors. And, of course, the joyful outcome reflects what happens in heaven when one sinner repents. But as well as these close similarities, there are two differences between these two stories. One is the numbers. You start with 100, go down to 10, and then we come down to 2 in the next story. There is this focusing down into the story that we're about to read. The other difference, and not everyone notices this, is that the first one is about something being lost far from home. And the second one is about something being lost at home. Hang on to that thought 
It's important, and we'll return to it. I've often heard it said that parables really only make a single point, and you shouldn't press the details for their meaning. That may be valid for the more simple, straightforward parables. But what we have here in Luke chapter 15 is carefully crafted and profound in several ways. This multifaceted aspect of the parable is reflected by people suggesting various titles for it. Some have suggested the parable of the waiting father or the parable of the loving father. Or as in the section heading in the Bible here, it's the parable of the lost son. But then the question arises, which son? Because there were two of them. When I was growing up and heard evangelistic sermons at various times, I'm pretty sure that it was always the rebellious younger son that was in view. Now, in common with most other parables, the setting and the context is familiar to the hearers, but then there may come an unexpected twist which makes you sit up and take notice. And this story has more than its fair share of twists and surprises for Jesus' hearers. Let's take a closer look. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The conventions of inheritance within a family were clear. The father had control of his estate all his life. So this younger son's request was absolutely outrageous. He was effectively saying, I want my inheritance now, and you are as good as dead, for all I care. For those listening at the time, the expected response from the father would be not just a severe telling off, uh, quite possibly a slap around the face, and the son might even have been disinherited. It was that serious. But the next surprise is that the father actually grants his request. He was accepting the shame brought on himself and his family by this request. In terms of the amount, the Torah is clear that the older son should get a double portion, which would be two-thirds of the estates, and so the younger son would get one-third. Returning to the story. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. The younger son was in a hurry to leave, so he probably would have gotten money, i.e. in gold and silver, a lot less than the value of his share of the estate. He wanted to be unaccountable, so he headed off for a foreign territory far away from his family and his community. And the Greek word for wild living is, as you would expect, immoral as well as reckless. 
his lifestyle came crashing down just as a severe famine hit the country. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Then came humiliation after humiliation. Not only was he serving a pagan, but he was sent to feed pigs. And then he ended up even lower than the pigs, because at least they had food, whereas he was starving. The carob pods fed to pigs were not digestible by humans. His life had hit rock bottom. When he came to his senses, Jesus continued, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Don't you think that his response resonates with some of those words that we heard read earlier in Psalm 32. I'll just repeat them. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Both of these have this clear intent to do something about it. So finally, the prodigal son realizes his folly, repents, and decides to head back to his father. His intention is to become a servant and try to pay off his debt. We're not told what his total debt was, but I suspect Jesus' hearers would have thought it was virtually an impossible task based on the wages of a servant. His planned confession, have you noticed, uses the phrase sinned against heaven. And here, the use of the word heaven to replace the word God was a common way to avoid the holy name. And this custom of not saying God's holy name is still practiced by observant Jews, as you probably know. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Jesus' portrayal of the father in this story would be a further surprise to his hearers. Firstly, it says the father would see his son while he was still far off. This would mean that every day the father would have been looking for him. Perhaps several times a day he would have gone up onto the high point of his house and scanned the horizon looking for his son with hope and longing. Secondly, when he saw his son, he immediately gathered up his robes and ran to meet him. In that culture, it was not just undignified, it was degrading and humiliating for a patriarch 
to run anywhere. Thirdly, the father's embrace was so warm and unrestrained. And maybe we can find an image. I found a scene of this online, the embrace and the reunion in the fields outside before the servants arrived. Maybe you've not seen that one before. I did that and I chose that rather than the Rembrandt picture because everyone knows that one. The response that Jesus would have expected after the son brought so much shame on the family was a flat rejection along the lines of leave and don't come back. You are dead to us. When a son had left the family under those circumstances that Jesus described, the family would have held a funeral to make it clear that he was dead as far as they were concerned. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Did you notice the son doesn't get a chance to offer his form of restitution by becoming a hired servant? His father interrupts him with a completely different solution. Full sonship restored. Firstly, the best robe would have been what the father used for only the most special of occasions. It might even have been a garment handed down through the families. The ring was probably a signet ring used for marking property. It signified restored authority. And the sandals for his feet marked him out as a son, not a servant, because they went barefoot. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meat was a rarity in their diet in those days. And a fattened calf was only for the best of occasions, like a wedding feast. It would have provided so much meat that this celebration and party would have been not just for the family, but for the whole community, the whole village would have joined in with this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Something is very wrong here in this picture. It's not just that the older son didn't know what was going on. It's that as the older son, he should have been taking a key role in the reconciliation between his father and his younger brother. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. The younger son that rebelled shamed his family and was lost far from home represents the tax collectors and the sinners. Through repentance and knowing they deserve nothing, they have been able to receive, by grace, reconciliation with their Heavenly Father. But the older son shows an attitude of self-righteousness and resentment towards his younger brother. Even though he remained at home, his attitudes and failure to understand his father's love and compassion means he is effectively estranged from his father. He is lost at home. This represents the scribes and Pharisees who think they should be rewarded because of their service, but they disdain the sinners who have been repented and been restored. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. At this point in the drama, let's summarize the situation between the two sons. One has ended up with no material inheritance, but has entered into a new relationship with his father that he never had before. The older son has all the material inheritance. He has all the stuff, but no relationship with his father. Unable to comprehend his father's love for his brother, who was lost and is found. And what's more, he can't receive or understand his father's love for himself. So who now is the lost son? And what I particularly like about this story is that Jesus deliberately left the ending open. The story is left hanging without a conclusion. What happened is the obvious question. The intention was that the scribes and Pharisees would, on reflection, realize how they had been characterized and then be shocked into a thoroughgoing evaluation by repentance. It remained within their grasp to create the desired ending of the story, one person at a time. This way to end a story reminds me of how the book of Jonah ends. The Lord has the last word, and it has such impact that it's like a depth charge going off within you. Suddenly, there's a realization of the character of God, which changes those who hear. So how should we respond to this story of human failings contrasted with the Father's overflowing compassion and kindness? I think in the time left, the best thing to do is to read some words of Paul 
that we heard earlier from the letter to the Corinthians. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those, that characterization of your amazing and almost unbelievable love and compassion to those who are both lost far away and lost at home. Father, help us to show and to speak of this reconciliation that others may enter into this fellowship with the God of the universe who steps so low to seek what is lost. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.